This podcast is produced and issued by Morningstar Investment Management, LLC, a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. The content is intended for U.S. audiences only. Individuals featured in this podcast are employed by Morningstar, Inc. and its subsidiaries. This includes, but is not limited to, Morningstar Investment Management, LLC and Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services are registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Stay tuned for additional important disclosure information at the end of this episode. An economic recovery is cause for celebration, but how exactly do we capitalize on it? Since it began in 2020, the decline that COVID brought us has been called the deepest and shortest economic crisis in history. The nature of the forced shutdown followed by the subsequent reopening is an indication of just how unique this recovery has been. Welcome, I'm Philip Strail, Global Head of Research at Morningstar Investment Management. Today's episode of Simple But Not Easy is from a previous webinar. In it, I'm joined by Paul Arnold, Portfolio Manager and Co-Head of Asset Allocation Strategies at Morningstar Investment Management. We examine the recovery's progress as it stands now. We also touch on where some of the risks may lie and how our portfolios are positioned to best take advantage of the recovery as it marches on. All right, so our discussion for today is gonna be around the US economic recovery uh, since early 2020. So that'd have been Q1 of 2020. Uh, We're gonna be talking about the recovery's progress so far and some of the risks going forward. We'll also talk about how the market has responded to the economic recovery. And then finally, we'll be talking about how some some of our positioning in our portfolios that we believe will capitalize on a continued recovery. So let's get into the content. We have a good amount of content for you today. I will be handling, handing this off to Philip first. And Philip and Paul, both of you, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. And thanks, everybody, for joining uh, today's discussion. Um, we will kick things off. We're just uh, checking in on how we've done um, as far as the economic recovery, and just want to start with uh, sort of a long-term perspective of uh, the most recent uh, COVID-induced drawdown that we saw uh, in, in 2020 and, and what it looks uh, in a long-term historical context. And when we just look at this chart and that uh, 31.2% uh, uh, negative decline in quarterly GDP year over year, and then the subsequent recovery, we can just uh, appreciate how unique of a uh, economic event uh, we were we were dealing with. Uh, I've heard it said or described as the deepest and shortest economic crisis uh, uh, in history, and just the nature of the economic uh, impact that we've seen with basically a, for, a forced shutdown of, of many parts of the uh, economy, and then the reopening uh, just speaks to uh, the uniqueness of the of the crisis we've seen. If we take a closer look on the next slide on um, how far we've come in the recovery process. So looking at the the real GDP of the US over the past couple of years, we've seen uh, a 10% decline uh, going into mid 2020. And since over the the subsequent 12 months, we have then seen uh, GDP recover. Uh, There's there's been significant uh, stimulus, both uh, on the monetary front, 
through uh, interest rate cuts or uh, quantitative easing, as well as fiscal stimulus that helped uh, this recovery process. But as far as where GDP has been mid uh, this year, we, are, we have now fully recovered uh, GDP on that basis. And GDP is expected to grow at 6%. Uh, this year, it's continue, expected to continue to grow um, uh, roughly 4% uh, based off of consensus in 2023. 2022, and then drop down uh, closer to 22.5% uh, in 2023. Um, if you look at the em employment picture on the next slide, um, we can see that significant progress has also been made on the unemployment front. So looking at uh, this blue measure, which is uh, U3, uh, which measure, which is the more, most commonly used measure of unemployment uh, as of the last uh, update, as of the end of uh, August, the unemployment rate is 5.2%, which is actually below uh, the long-term average as well. And uh, looking at a broader measure of unemployment in U6, which uh, includes workers that uh, are underemployed or discouraged, uh, we're also below that, uh, that longer-term average. Uh, again, focusing in on, on the more recent period and, and taking a closer look at um, how quickly um, the labor market has recovered, uh, moving on to the next slide, um, we can see that uh, in uh, February of 2020, that unemployment rate was actually below 4% going into the pandemic at 3.5%. We've then seen uh, an almost an over a uh, 10 percentage point increase in the unemployment rate up to 14.8% uh, in May of 2020. And then with the uh, economic reopening, we've then seen that sort of gradual uh, decline over the past uh, 12 months or so now are now back down to 5.2% to uh, as far as the unemployment rate. Uh, that's still below the, that's still higher than the unemployment rate that we saw going into the pandemic. So, uh, from early 2016 to uh, the beginning of the pandemic, the unemployment rate was was four percent, and there's uh, reasons to be uh, optimistic about uh, the trend, the recent trend we've seen with uh, the impact of the uh, the Delta variant uh, subsiding, uh, as well as some of the um, uh, some unemployment insurance running out, which should benefit this trend. Hopefully, going into uh, the latter part of this year. So overall, uh, good progress on the, the economic recovery front. I do want to touch on um, uh, a couple of risks or uh, two or three risks that um, uh, have been talked about as uh, you know, potential risks to the economic recovery and provide you with some perspective as to uh, what uh, we think uh, reasonable outcomes are here. So I want to start with the um, exit from you know kind of the stimulus we've seen. Um, this is looking at the federal funds rate uh, going back um, a couple of decades. And um, one of the things to, to just pay attention to here, we can see the um, global financial crisis uh, in context with the uh, the rate uh, decreases we've seen going into the global pandemic, uh, there was much less policy room uh, getting into uh, this downturn, where uh, the Fed funds rate was at one and a half uh, percent going into the crisis, and was of course cut to to zero uh, subsequently in last March. Uh, there is an expectation that uh, interest rates will will increase this. Um, dotted line, the gray line shows uh, the FOMC's uh, prediction as to where uh, this will go. And so half of the uh, FOMC members expect uh, at least one rate cut in, uh, in 2022. Um, about a third of FOMC members expect uh, the uh, FOMC, the, uh, the 
the target rate to be above 1% by uh, 2023 and ultimately uh, to go back to uh, 2.5%. Uh, if you look at what the market's pricing in uh, on the next slide as far as uh, rate expectations, that's that guidance provided by the um, uh, FOMC is reflected in uh, market prices looking at uh, Fed funds future rates. Uh, so the market expects uh, a one hike basically by the end of uh, 2022. Um, and so uh, market has, has sort of appreciated uh, the, the, uh, the exit plans uh, that the Fed has, uh, has put forward. Um, the Fed has also, uh, uh, of, of course, uh, purchased um, uh, at QE, continued QE, and just looking at the, the balance sheet of the Fed uh, over the past uh, 10 years since the global financial crisis, uh, we can see the, the significant response uh, that we've seen from the Fed as far as uh, quantitative easing, um, where uh, the Fed is still buying um, $120 billion uh, in, uh, in assets on a monthly basis. And the expectation is that uh, by November uh, that the, uh, the tapering uh, will start. And uh, what will we'll continue to be uh, data dependent um, and uh, should there be um, a bigger impact from uh, the Delta variant, for example, or uh, you know China, for example? I think we, we think the Fed will uh, will listen to to that information. But the way things stand uh, with the health and the progress that we've made uh, as far as the economic recovery and unemployment, uh, uh, our expect our expectation is that the tapering will start uh, this November. On the, the fiscal side, and really uh, the, unique, the uniqueness of, of this downturn um, has been that the policy space on the monetary side has been somewhat limited um, because interest rates were quite low as uh, the federal funds rate, as we've just seen, was at uh, 1.5% going into the crisis, uh, going into the global financial crisis. That, uh, that, that uh, interest rate level was much higher, was at uh, around 5%. And so... Um, Fiscal stimulus really was dominating uh, the response that we've seen last year. And just looking at the, the fiscal deficit as a percentage of annual GDP, we can see uh, that negative 15%, which uh, accounts for a lot of that, that fiscal stimulus we've seen last year in the form of unemployment insurance or loans to, uh, to businesses or, uh, or uh, cash payments. And uh, that has significantly benefited um, uh, consumers. So, if you look at the the balance sheet of, of consumers today and uh, the um, the disposable income available to them, uh, that looks uh, very healthy. There's also uh, a chance for additional uh, fiscal packages to be uh, passed. Uh, possibility of uh, the infrastructure uh, bill to be passed uh, later this year, as well as uh, a broader spending bill that would um, would continue to keep up um, fiscal. Uh, fiscal spending. So overall, uh, we think that uh, the the policymakers have responded well and uh, have sort of guided uh, their plans moving forward. And so our expectation uh, would be that this wouldn't uh, derail uh, the economic recovery. We also think that they will continue to be uh, data dependent in assessing uh, any potential delay of uh, the exit plan from a from a stimulus perspective. 
So moving on to, to the next uh, you know, potential risk uh, around inflation. Uh, inflation has uh, crept up. Um, so since June, we've seen inflation prints above 5%, which we haven't seen in, in a while. We've been in a period of, of low uh, inflation going into this downturn. And um, this chart just provides some perspective as to what has driven the inflation rate um, over the, the, the more recent history uh, during this pandemic period. So um, one uh, impact that, that we've seen among early con- contributor uh, to higher inflation has been uh, what, what we would call base effects. So the fact that energy prices uh, declined quite significantly, for example, oil prices declined very significantly uh, last year uh, during the pandemic. Um, and uh, we now see the, the re- reverse happening. So looking at the energy Bar. Uh, so this is the contribution of energy to inflation over this time frame. You can see that it was negative, a negative contribution last year now has turned positive as energy prices have recovered and ultimately will make uh, kind of make their way through those inflation numbers and will be uh, transitory. The second uh, impact would be from um, sectors that have faced supply chain shortages. shortages. These would be um, uh, categories such as uh, cars, for example, appliances, furniture. These are captured in the in the green line here, commodities, X food and energy. And you can see that that's been a category that has really uh, drifted up in, in, in recent months. Our expectation is that these uh, supply constraints will ultimately, uh, you know, make make their way uh, kind of through the system, and there will be uh, a relieved uh, a relief pressure and more of a normalization in those um, in those areas. If you look at inflation expectations, uh, so what the market's pricing in as far as uh, you know future exp- uh, uh, inflation expectations, uh, this is looking at uh, both the five and ten year inflation expectations uh, based off of. Uh, the nominal interest rate, as well as the uh, the rate on tips, um, and you can see that we've been um, going into the the global pandemic. We've had pretty low inflation expectations, uh, and then uh, they actually turned very low uh, at the uh, height of the market sell-off in March, and uh, have subsequently recovered and are around two, two and a half percent uh, for both the five-year and 10-year and rate. So overall, uh, inflation expectations are uh, well anchored um, and are sort of responding to um, some of the base effects that we've, we've mentioned with uh, energy prices, some uh, components of the uh, some, some supply chain uh, some some supply chain uh, impacted areas, um, seeing higher inflation and also the the fiscal stimulus uh, that we've seen. But overall, we think that um, the inflation rate is uh, broadly uh, well anchored, and we can also see that on the next slide when we look at surveys and how uh, consumers are um, assessing the uh, the risk of, of future inflation. This is uh, from a survey from the University of Michigan, where uh, the, particularly the long-term um, inflation expectation uh, is still within a historical range. And so uh, a potential concern would be if um, the inflation rate uh, or if inflation expectations would become uh, somewhat unanchored. So um, so from our perspective, looking at the, the most recent uh, inflation dynamics, uh, we think many of them will be, will be transitory and will ultimately, um, will ultimately get back to inflation rates closer to, to 2%. We are, however, however watching um, the uh, wage uh, dynamics, for example, which could be 
uh, an area where uh, more sustained inflation pressures could uh, develop. But uh, our base case would be that um, the inflation picture remains uh, well anchored and it's just um, uh, some of these uh, transitory factors that are feeding through uh, those uh, inflation prints at the moment. Moving on to the um, the spread of uh, the Delta variant in particular, and so looking at uh, daily hospitalizations and deaths uh, over the past uh, 18 months or so, uh, we can sort of see that fourth wave, and we can see that um, both uh, hospitalizations as well as uh, fatalities have uh, declined, which suggests that uh, you know we've the worst is over as far as uh, the spread of the uh, of the Delta uh, variant. Uh, another reason to be optimistic um, is on the next slide, if you look at the um, uh, vaccination rates uh, in the United States, which uh, uh, was, was we've seen a pretty early uh, rollout there, uh, but particularly in other uh, economies, other parts of the world, um, like Europe, the European Union or, or China, we've seen uh, significant progress uh, in recent months uh, on that front and in many cases eclipsing the um, vaccination rates that we see uh, here domestically. And so that should, um, uh, outside of the advent of a uh, another resistant variant, uh, we think uh, that will uh, certainly help us keep uh, hospitalization rates and fatalities down um, in, in should there be uh, another wave of the virus. Finally, the uh, activity levels, uh, we've seen a slowdown in economic activity and travel uh, in response, of course, of the, the big, uh, uh, the, uh, the pandemic. And so we've seen massive declines in, in travel, which ultimately have uh, normalized and we've seen uh, relatively high levels uh, throughout the summer. Um, we've then seen um, uh, a bit of a slowdown related to the, the Delta variant, uh, but now, um, as we've seen uh, some of those case numbers uh, you know, uh, decline, we, we have now seen that uh, tick back up. And so that uh, should be positive for the continued uh, recovery and also uh, the unemployment picture that we, we mentioned earlier. So overall, our assessment um, would be that uh, the uh, economic recovery uh, would continue. Uh, we think that policymakers will, uh, will make sure that they um, have an exit plan uh, that doesn't derail the economy. We think that the inflation picture um, is, uh, is stable, and we think that uh, some of the effects that uh, uh, impact inflation will or have led to, to higher prints uh, are, are transitory. And, uh, and we also see um, reasons to be uh, optimistic on the, on the COVID front, um, given the, the trends we've, we've seen on, on case numbers and, and hospitalizations uh, of late. So uh, turning now to the, uh, the market performance and, and how the market has responded to uh, this economic downturn, uh, relative to uh, previous um, economic crises. So in, in this chart, we're first showing um, the both the average return of the U.S. market in green, the performance of value versus growth stocks in, um, uh, in, in the darker green. And then in blue, we can see the performance of small versus uh, large cap stocks. And so we're comparing... Uh, the performance after global recession. So we looked at five uh, global recessions between 1960 and uh, 2019 and looked at uh, both the average return of um, 
the overall market uh, value and, and small cap, um, as well as the return after global recessions. And what we see is that uh, generally the market does quite well after a global recession. So the, the market performance one year after a global recession um, has been 20% compared to uh, 11.5% uh, in, in normal times. Um, value also has tended to outperform uh, roughly a performance of 10% compared to a, um, a performance of 4% during normal times. And also small caps have outperformed with a performance of uh, 11.5% compared to a outperformance of 2% in normal times. So if you look at uh, market performance so far uh, following the, um, the economic uh, crisis on the next slide, we can see that um, in the now showing the performance of uh, the U.S. market value and, and small caps uh, so far since April of 2020, we can see that the market overall has responded very significantly. So on an annualized basis since April of last year, the market performed uh, 55.5%, uh, which is uh, actually significantly stronger than we've seen in previous global recessions. Um, then looking at small uh, cap performance, we've also seen a, a strong performance of small caps with, with a return of 16% uh, compared to uh, usually the, the number I mentioned uh, before is around 11.5%. The area where we haven't seen um, as much of a response yet or an outperformance yet was on the value versus growth side. So historically, after a global recession, um, value stocks uh, outperformed by 10%. And uh, in the most recent cycle, they only outperformed by, by 2%. So uh, if we go back to the previous slide once, once more, um, just to, to make that point again, uh, so value stocks, um, historically, the, the five global recessions we've seen since 1960, uh, value stocks outperformed by 10%. And um, in, the, in this current cycle, um, it's, it's been up by, by 2%. And just looking at that value growth picture uh, once more, um, on the next slide, um, just showing the, the historical uh, excess return of value versus growth stocks. So um, value is the green line here, which shows the uh, rolling five-year excess return of value relative to uh, the broad market in green. And then in, in black, we can see growth. And uh, in, in the most recent um, half decade, a decade, as we know, growth has really dominated uh, market performance. And we see that um, uh, slight improvement uh, since November uh, of of last year, but we're still, uh, you know, significantly behind uh, growth. And when we look at also the valuation picture and and how assets are priced, we we do feel that in that value bucket, the more cyclical parts of the market uh, are more attractive. And Paul Arnold will speak uh, to that specifically in a minute. And um, also uh, moving to to the, the final slide um, of the discussion today. Um, uh, we can take a look at how um, value stocks have historically performed uh, in different macroeconomic regimes, uh, specifically how they responded during periods of, of inflation. And um, we've see, we see in this, uh, this back test here um, that uh, generally value stocks have, on, uh, have outperformed in periods of high inflation. So there's also a, an element of, of macroeconomic robustness. Uh, should we see um, inflation uh, continuing to, to tick up. And if you look at um, some of the relative performance we've seen earlier this week with um, 
the market readjusting its uh, inflation expectations. We've generally seen uh, growth stocks or, or stocks with, with higher cash flow durations like the technology sector um, sell off. So um, just to, to wrap things off before I turn it over to, to Paul at this stage, um, we think you know, significant progress has been made in the economic recovery. If you look at macroeconomic fundamentals, uh, we think that uh, the market has uh, responded to that in a, in a meaningful way, in, in a number of ways. The market's up significantly since the, the bottom we've seen in March of, of last year. But we do th- still think that there's um, areas uh, to potentially benefit from uh, the continued uh, recovery. And so I'll, I'm pleased to, to not pass it over to Paul Arnold uh, to, to speak more specifically about our, our asset class views and what we're doing in our portfolios in that front. Hi, everybody. Thanks, Philip. Uh, it's very insightful. And we're going to try and uh, tie that into uh, how our portfolios are positioned here. Um, and one point I'd like to make that I think is uh, really important um, you know, we talked a little bit at the beginning about the economic environment. Uh, but the economic environment is different from how markets have uh, responded. Uh, uh, the markets are more uh, forward-looking and vote based on their expectations, whereas you know a lot of the data we're looking at um, is uh, historical in nature. And so I know I noticed a question um, about the unprecedented government support. Um, I think that's sort of led to uh, you know the, the robust, uh, broad market returns that we've seen. Um, and so that's, you know, that's one explanation uh, for, for why uh, it's like that. And so I think it, you know, it certainly is fair to look at prior performance periods as long as you're uh, taking into account, um, you know, what might have led to that, and, and which we do in our process. So some of, the, some of the ways that our process takes into account the economic environment, uh, and this is not an exhaust, exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, inflation certainly uh, fits into our forecast. Economic growth expectations is a part of our uh, return uh, equation and yield curve implications, uh, primarily for fixed income, although it does impact equities a bit. So uh, we'll start by looking at our current convictions um, and, and some equity asset classes here. And you'll notice that the U.S., uh, has the lowest conviction uh, of the bunch that we're showing at low to medium. Um, and it's true that valuations are uh, historically high for U.S. equities. And uh, on that uh, on that metric alone, you might uh, think that we would put the U.S. Uh, at a low conviction. But um, you know, when we incorporate fundamental risk and, and sort of the uh, risk of permanent loss of capital relative to uh, other markets, the U.S. still is in a, a really solid position. And so uh, that sort of offsets some of the really unattractive valuations at the broad U.S. market level. Outside the U.S. and in terms of other developed markets, Japan and U.K. stand out as two areas that, that we really like uh, and both offer some uh, interesting diversification perspectives when included in our uh, asset allocation portfolios. Emerging markets uh, as a whole are not um, overly attractive. But if you do dig down into uh, some of the specific countries that make up the, that broad index, uh, Mexico, which has performed really well as of late, as well as uh, China is now starting to stand out as uh, a little bit more attractive with the um, some of the uncertainty that's uh, going on in terms of their government policy leading to uh, asset price depression. Uh, 
We'll touch on this a little bit later, but it's not a surprise when you look at the, a sector lens that energy and financials are standing out in terms of being some of the more attractive opportunities, uh, and we will touch on that. But moving on to fixed income, um, this is uh, sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure book where all of the adventures end poorly. Um, what we're seeing is, if you think back to the slides that Philip uh, showed you with inflation expectations, um, you know, you're looking at inflation in sort of the two, two and a half percent range, and it sort of crept up recently um, because rates have been so depressed um, and, you know, they, they, remain, uh, they remain very low uh, currently. Um, you know, the, there are many fixed income asset classes that are, uh, that, that we are projecting to actually have a negative real return, so not even covering inflation uh, over the 10-year period. And those that are covering inflation come at the increased uh, cost of higher risk. So high yield, for example, spreads are at incredibly low levels relative to history. Um, and you know, I think you know, perhaps saying picking up pennies in front of a steamroller is a, is a bad example in this case. Um, because many of the there are many supportive measures in the marketplace, uh, it does leave you susceptible to a larger loss, and you have to understand that reward for risk trade off. There, a local currency emerging market debt is one area uh, that does stand out to us as having um, you know a little bit more robustness in terms of it expected uh, its expected return, um, being more commensurate with the with the risk level that you take there. Um, and so now that we sort of think about those convictions um, and we think about uh, some of the themes of the recovery and how, uh, how it leads to the convictions that we've just mentioned, I'd like to talk a little bit about how our portfolios are positioned to uh, take advantage of that. So this first slide, and I apologize for it being a little busy here, but it's it, the broad uh, idea is to give you an idea as to our a market cap positioning, so our size between large, mid, small in the U.S., uh, actually, pardon me, globally, as well as our position uh, across the investing styles of value, core, and growth, uh, which is the traditional Morningstar style box. So if you see the yellow dot in the center of the blend category, that is our uh, aggressive growth benchmark, so our, our most equity-heavy um, asset allocation portfolio benchmark. And it falls uh, just ever so slightly towards the right of center of the blend category. Peers are in the, um, a peer measure is the um, red dot. That's the Morningstar aggressive target risk benchmark that um, is used by our parent company. It's not our portfolio benchmark, but you can see uh, generally if you're building a well-diversified portfolio, you do end up uh, shifted a little bit more uh, uh, left of our benchmark. And then you have our portfolios, which is the blue dot. So we are positioned towards value, and we're also slightly lower in market cap compared to our benchmark. And, and as Philip mentioned, um, certainly the fact that we have not seen value uh, recover in terms of its market price and its valuation relative to growth, um, and certainly relative to history coming out of recessions, uh, gives us uh, a strong belief that that we are positioned properly and will aim to 
uh, sort of reap uh, future market rewards uh, as long as the uh, recovery stays on track. And we've started to see that play out a little bit towards the end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021. And it's starting to sort of come back uh, over the last month or so uh, as well. You'll also notice in the lower left portion uh, where we're showing the actual percentage exposure in the style box, that there's a slant towards uh, the left and the bottom, which sort of indicates our preference for uh, value and lower capitalization uh, companies. But it certainly is not something that, um, you know, is overwhelming the portfolio by any stretch of the imagination. You, you know, certainly we are uh, operating a benchmark relative strategy with our ETF portfolios. And so um, just want to give you an idea as to how we're positioning there to take advantage of what we believe is a forthcoming uh, value uh, outperformance uh, as the economic recovery continues. Moving on to our position in certain sectors, um, I mentioned earlier we have high conviction in energy and financials. And so in aggregate, uh, energy and financials in the red box there on the left, we're showing you our overweight relative to uh, our aggressive growth benchmark. Um, those two sectors in aggregate represent the biggest uh, overweight in the portfolio from a sector lens. Um, you know, we believe that with the economic recovery, you're certainly seeing uh, energy prices. Um, as Philip showed you in the inflation, uh, on one of his inflation slides, you've seen uh, energy prices and commodity prices uh, increase. Um, certainly that's been a boon to energy companies who are able to support their robust dividends and you know, continue to uh, provide attractive payout ratios, which we believe uh, uh, will lead to attractive returns over the next decade. Um, with financials, the expectation uh, of rising rates, you saw the Federal Reserve indicate, uh, first of all, on Phillips' chart that uh, they're expecting uh, a path for rates to increase in the coming years. Also, um, you know, they've indicated their repurchase program is going to uh, start to taper off soon. Um, you know, we expect all those things to be a boon for financial companies uh, who can capture larger spreads uh, on their lending portfolios. So that's, that's certainly that cyclical exposure is one of the most targeted and direct ways that we can, uh, that we can um, take advantage of the economic recovery uh, that we're seeing globally. Uh, moving forward, uh, I'd be remiss if we, we also didn't mention that generally speaking, uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, markets react before the data uh, in most cases. And so markets have anticipated uh, much of the recovery uh, that we've seen so far. Um, and so we're seeing generally higher valuations across most equity assets as well as fixed income assets compared to their history. And so we're not blindly jumping into uh, cyclicals uh, and leaving our portfolio um, in that sort of super aggressive position without um, providing a little bit of uh, a diversification and buffer uh, in case the um, market valuations sort of reset themselves back to historical levels. And so you will see a robust position here in consumer staples. It's actually individually our number one overweight relative to the benchmark. And um, perhaps if bonds were more attractive, we might offset the portfolio with uh, a greater treasury position 
or perhaps built in some more conservative uh, views that way. However, with bonds being so unattractive, um, you know, we felt consumer staples offered an, uh, an acceptable uh, valuation on a relative basis while also providing that defensive uh, nature that you don't get with uh, our cyclical positions. Moving forward, um, this is obviously a big topic and one that we've been uh, historically uh, wrong on over the last uh, two or three years. Um, the the Fangum concentration, the big tech uh, uh, large position in um, the global market benchmark um, has led us to have an underweight there, both because we find that their, their valuations are not overly attractive, but also our portfolio, uh, our valuation-driven process tends to uh, look for areas uh, that have the greater forward-looking opportunity. And as names perform very well, it tends to, their valuations tend to rise and they become less attractive through our lens. And so um, generally speaking, uh, unless we find uh, that these names that are outperforming have a, a, a huge potential runway and, and we believe the market is continuing to undervalue them, we're going to have a natural underweight to those top of uh, benchmark names. And it just so happens because now these big tech stocks have gotten so big, it, it looks a little bit more pronounced than in some other historical periods. So I do want to highlight that communication services, consumer discretionary, which Amazon sits in, and information technology are our biggest underweights relative to the benchmark. Um, I did add a slide on the right here um, just to sort of highlight um, because technology is such a big portion of the benchmark, um, we're around 60% of that benchmark weight, which is similar to our other underweights in the portfolio on a percentage basis, but in absolute terms, it ends up being a bigger number because information technology is such a huge portion of the benchmark. Uh, while we have been wrong, uh, we certainly haven't uh, sat on our hands uh, and, and just hoped that things would turn around. We, uh, if you were attending our webinar series uh, uh, in earnest over the prior year, you will remember we did a deep dive into these big tech names. We updated some of our models, some of our growth estimates and other numbers in our model, um, and it did boost our expected return uh, for this area. Um, also, as value stocks outperformed towards the end of last year and the beginning of this year, um, we have taken steps in our portfolios to uh, start to shrink up, uh, sort of opportunistically, start to shrink up some of the underweights in those, in those names as some of the value names have outperformed. I've got one more slide to talk about, uh, and uh, I'm using our actual current ETF portfolios uh, to, to talk about this point. So um, this is going to serve two purposes. One, I think it's really important for you all to be able to see our portfolios um, and, and understand uh, what they look like and be able to ask any questions of me on them. But also, as it relates to inflation, um, there are many positions within our portfolio um, that should do well if we continue to see inflation persist. And we do believe our portfolio is positioned well in the event of higher inflation. So I've highlighted it in red boxes here. Um, are, these are our actual uh, allocations to the ETFs. And so um, I've highlighted our value ETFs. We, 
we have um, both a broad U.S. value. We have some small cap value exposure. We have a financials uh, ETF in there. And we also have um, two energy ETFs, both MLPs as well as um, a global energy ETF. We have some non-U.S. developed value exposure with the MSCI EFA value ETF. And uh, in the fixed income space, we, we remain, uh, although it's been reduced, we, we, we kept a small portion of our fixed income exposure uh, within TIPS. Uh, tips, even TIPS have become less attractive as the market has now bid up uh, the break-even inflation rate higher than our expected long-term inflation rate. Um, so it's just another fixed income asset class that um, is not providing the uh, the same return that we would expect over its history. But nonetheless, um, we do believe there, there could be some inflation surprises in the short term, uh, and we want to make sure the portfolios are protected. So uh, the cyclical and value-oriented equities, as we mentioned, have typically performed well in inflationary environments, and they are sprinkled in pretty handily into our uh, portfolios here. Uh, and with that, uh, I think we're sort of right up on time. Uh, I'm going to turn it back over to Jeff uh, to run through some questions that you all have submitted. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate that. Uh, and just a quick reminder to everyone, uh, if you haven't submitted any questions already, please go ahead and feel free to submit using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Um, and thanks, Philip, um, you know, for, for, for providing some of our best thinking uh, and your insights onto not only uh, the risks to the economic recovery, but also some of the risks to the market's reaction to that economic recovery. Uh, and then, of course, Paul, with uh, some of your insights into how we are currently positioned to take advantage of some of these developments uh, that we see happening. Uh, that's all the prepared content we have. So we're going to go ahead and move into questions. And we have had a couple come in. So I'm just going to kick things off. Um, I think, Paul, this, this one's probably more directed to you. But by all means, Philip, if you, if you want to add anything to add there. Um, if you could, can you talk more about the recent performance of TIPS and their role in the portfolios, given current inflation rates and the Fed's stated position that inflation will be transitory? Absolutely. So there's a couple, a couple of uh, different ways uh, we can go with this one. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the recent performance of TIP. So we've seen um, over the course of the, the last two quarters, break even, uh, maybe even slightly longer than that, but break even rates have been increasing. And uh, the break even rate is, is essentially the uh, market's implied inflation rate. And so uh, as a product, uh, by definition, what TIPS uh, will do is um, provide you with inflation protection depending on where actual inflation ends up. But the way that you purchase TIPS in the marketplace, that, that the yields uh, are influenced by market participants' views on inflation. So what's happened over the past two quarters is that the market has anticipated that there's going to be higher level of inflation. And that has pushed up the price of tips and made that inflation protection in some ways uh, a little bit less attractive in our view, um, because unless uh, we are wrong and inflation ends up being higher than our estimate, um, we're not being fully compensated 
um, for purchasing tips. Um, that being said, I don't think, you know, uh, I'm certainly not going to sit here and pretend that my view on inflation is a hundred percent certainty that it will be in the, um, you know, two, two and a quarter, even two and a half percent range over the next 10 years. That's our base case. And, uh, we certainly, uh, have a case <laughs> to be made that we could be wrong. And so we want to make sure we are protecting, uh, the portfolios, especially on the conservative end where, um, you know, inflation can really erode, uh, your income potential in those more fixed income heavy portfolios. Um, and we want to make sure we're building robust and well, uh, rounded portfolios. Our tips position now is about half of what it was, uh, at, at its peak. And even though tips are not in our benchmark, we don't feel as though we're giving up. Um, you know, it's not a huge tracking error um, adder, so to speak, to include tips uh, in a portfolio. It certainly is different from, say, um, a sector or a, a country type bet in equities. Um, and one other reason why we are cautious on tips and we've started to reduce that position is that they they don't act explicitly like treasuries in a risk off environment. Um, for liquidity purposes and other reasons, um, they don't have the same uh, diversification benefit uh, that regular plain vanilla treasuries have. And so it certainly is the case from our perspective that our conviction has been reduced. It's now at a low to medium. Um, if we see break-evens rise more, we might look to exit that position, um, but we've certainly taken it off our peak. So hopefully that provides a little um, background uh, into our view and why we hold tips at a reduced level. And I would agree with the question, you know, our base case is that inflation will be transitory. So this is more simply covering ourselves uh, in, the, in the instance that we are in fact wrong. Thanks for that, Paul. Uh, as you can, uh, as the listeners can surely tell by your nuanced answer that we've, we've given a lot of thought to tips and their positioning in our portfolio. So we are definitely watching things closely there. Um, next question um, is about our outlook on emerging markets and specifically China. Um, can we also talk about our views on EM debt? So up to grabs. I'm happy to kick things off on the equity side and, and maybe I'll throw it over to you, Paul, and, um, afterwards. But I think um, I would say generally the um, EM uh, is an area that we've uh, started to you know, kind of, first of all, I think EM, you have to kind of take a, a country specific, you know, view about, and uh, certainly as, as we looked at uh, uh, EM equity over the past, you know, couple of years, we've, we've tried to uh, understand some of the, the underlying dynamics. So we've, we've liked Korea uh, last year in particular, uh, Mexico is an area that we, that we, that we like. And uh, China is another area that we've uh, recently um, focused on and have uh, taken a more constructive view, given some of the uh, the sell-offs we've seen in that market. So that market is down 20 plus percent year to date. Some of the big tech names are down 40 plus percent. So um, I'd say we've had a nuanced view on on parts of the EM complex with more of country specific views, and have recently done uh, work on China, and that's an area that we're uh, uh, we're looking at as a as a as, a, as an investment. Um, at, at the moment, uh, we think that uh, particularly as we, as we, Paul mentioned, some of the, the value exposures that we have in the, in the portfolio, uh, some of those uh, high quality uh, uh, technology and consumer oriented companies in China, uh, we think uh, offer a, um, a 
good, a better reward for risk than we see elsewhere. At the same time, the, that that opportunity and uh, the cheapness of that market has to be, um, uh, you know, assessed within the context of some potential risks uh, that we see in that market, whether it's uh, the the VIE structure um, or potential regulation that we see, um, you know, coming from from a U.S. Uh, perspective as well. Uh, but overall, um, our our view on on China has has improved just given the significant price falls we've seen over the past um, uh, six to 12 months uh, as part of the regulatory crackdown. I don't know from an emerging market debt standpoint, uh, Paul, or, or any other views from your end on EM? Yeah, I think uh, specific as it is as it is regarding China, um, we've done a lot of work from a portfolio construction standpoint um, in, in terms of trying to understand. So we have a medium conviction uh, on China currently, um, it, it certainly is not the most attractive um, area by historical standards. And, and, and so um, I think you'll start to see us uh, aim to incorporate it into our portfolios, um, you know, in, in an appropriate manner, um, you know, commensurate with the fact that it's below our fair value estimate of the asset class. So um, we don't expect it to provide its um, long-run fair value return, given it, uh, where valuations are at today. And there certainly is a lot of fundamental risk associated um, with that asset class. So for us to you know, seriously entertain a, a very robust holding in China, we would want to see um, you know, returns uh, around fair value or perhaps even better than fair value, and, and certainly a, a little bit less uh, fundamental risk uh, associated with the position. Um, but it certainly is more attractive, Philip, as you mentioned. And so I, I would be on the lookout for uh, potential ways in our various portfolios that we might see that start to get integrated. In terms of emerging market debt, we're really seeing the opportunity in local currency. Um, so the, the currency aspect is certainly one area um, the uh, hard currency emerging market debt is has got a lot of duration and treasury uh, yield curve exposure, and you know as rates have sort of continued to go down, uh, you know duration is just generally unattractive, um, and so the the risk associated with hard currency emerging market debt um, is not uh, it. it it doesn't offer as robust reward for risk as the local currency markets do. And uh, when you look at spreads in the local currency market, they're, I, I believe, slightly below fair value, but very close to fair value. And so it's offering us an opportunity to add some return generation into the portfolio um, in ways that some other riskier fixed income asset classes like investment grade credit, high yield credit, and the hard currency emerging market that are not able uh, to offer right now. And so uh, that, that's why you'd see that as a more predominant position in our portfolios. Okay. Yeah. So another uh, EM in, in China, uh, again, two topics on a lot of investors' minds and uh, clearly on our minds as well. Uh, thank you for that, both of you. Um, next question. Uh, and I'm just Thinking back to this would have been the last section uh, that you covered, Philip, uh, that you noted that post-recession recovery has been weaker in value stocks. Uh, what do you view as the key reason for that relative underperformance? It's a great question. I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, the strong performance we've seen uh, on the uh, on the growth side. I think there's some one-off uh, characteristics which uh, are uh, related to the business models of some of the big tech firms 
uh, that we've seen. Uh, I think that's one reason why we we haven't maybe seen as as sharp of, uh, of a relative performance. We think about uh, you know the types of businesses that have benefited from. Um, the, the pandemic with uh, some secular trends like uh, e-commerce with Amazon, uh, you know, significantly increasing its revenues uh, throughout uh, 2020. And then uh, the Googles and Facebooks um, of the world, as well as, you know, Microsoft and some of these other companies, Netflix benefiting some of these trends. So I think there's, there's some to that story. Um, I also think that there's, um, I think uh, you're just, been some uniqueness of of the type of crisis we're dealing with with a uh, the the pandemic and uh, you know kind of throughout the summer there's uncertainty around the Delta variant which has then put pressure on uh, interest rates and has uh, you know kind of uh, some market participants and investors have, have lost confidence maybe in the in the continuation of the economic recovery so I think there's an element there um, as well and so um, I think if we look at the the picture from uh, evaluation standpoint point, which is really kind of how we're focusing our our attention and some of the points that Paul has made. We think that the value uh, parts of the market, looking at historical value spreads, looking at the valuation of energy uh, banks um, and some some more value-oriented countries like the UK, uh, look favorable uh, to us. So uh, our stance there on value is, is supported by by fundamentals and suggests that uh, market pricing hasn't really caught up uh, to the value that we're seeing uh, in that uh, in that market. But I, I agree that you know with the point that you know um, the uh, the market recovery and the the, the stimulus that we've seen uh, on the fiscal side has been has been quite uh, unique. And so we we do have to you know think about that dimension that dimension as well when we think about when we compare uh, this recovery to to previous uh, economic cycles. Okay. Um, great answer, Philip. Thank you for that. Uh, one more question here. And if anybody uh, wants to, to submit any more questions, uh, the Q&A button on your screen is, is where you do it. Um, and maybe I'll pose, because uh, we did cover uh, some of the risks to a sustained economic recovery. Um, maybe I'll pose this to each of you. Uh, if you had to pick one of the top risks on your radar, what, what is it the biggest potential headwind to our economic recovery continue? Maybe, uh, Philip, we'll, we'll start with you there. Yeah, I'd say just, um, I think what, what's happening to, uh, to the virus, I'd say, you know, the, um, if you look at the dominant uh, force in bringing that economic uh, activity back to normal, was the fact that people went back to work, people uh, people started spending again, started traveling again, and so uh, any any change to uh, economic activity uh, that we might see over the next three to six months, I think that's the dominant uh, that's going to be the dominant variable. Um, I think policymakers um, are going to be making sure that. Um, you know that they are continue to be accommodative to, to not to derail an economic recovery. So I think some of the points we made about interest rates, et cetera, uh, we're less concerned about. But should there be uh, another, uh, you know, new variant popping up that's potentially more resistant, or uh, if there's any uh, drop off in vaccine effect, uh, efficacy that that would impact economic activity, I would say that's the that's the key risk. Uh, but so so far, what we know uh, about uh, the Delta variant in particular and and vaccine efficacy, even uh, with uh, with the, the, some of the declined effectiveness that we see uh, a few months out, we still think that we're we're in good shape from from that standpoint. 
Makes sense. Paul, any, uh, what's, what's your top pick for uh, biggest potential headwind to the continued recovery? I think for me, it's just policymakers, um, you know, uh, propensity to perhaps get things wrong. And it's, it's going to be a really challenging time, I think, especially in the U.S., um, where we're seeing a lot of inflation pressure. Um, and, you know, that's, and, and markets have been performing well, so that's leading um, the Federal Reserve and other folks to sort of um, perhaps be less accommodative than they have through the crisis. Um, but they have to walk a really fine line, as Philip said, to, in order to sort of not derail uh, the recovery. And there's, there's a lot of competing interests around that. Um, you know, it, it, in order to fight inflation, you, you are taking measures that are sort of, um, non-stimulating to the economy. And, um, you know, if inflation turns out to be not as transitory as we all are expecting, I, I think there's generally some risk there in terms of how policymakers are going to respond. Makes sense as well. Um, I don't see any other questions, so I, I think that's it for today. Um, thank you so much, both of you, Philip and Paul, for sharing your insights with us today. And thanks to everyone who attended and who submitted questions. Uh, we really appreciate the opportunity to get to engage with you all. As a reminder, we will be posting a replay of this webcast. Please stick around for some important disclosures coming in just a moment. And thank you again for joining us today and for all of your questions. Have a great rest of your day. Once more, thanks for joining us for this episode of Simple But Not Easy. We appreciate you listening in. We'll be back with a new episode. But in the meantime, you can look at mp.morningstar.com for more details on Morningstar managed portfolios and additional investment insights. Thanks again. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of publication. Such opinions are subject to change. No Morningstar entity, including Morningstar Investment Management and Morningstar Research Services, shall be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the content presented. Morningstar makes no representation as of the completeness or accuracy of the information presented. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.